You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, let's jump in. Genesis chapter 2. If you're new with us, my name is Patrick, one of the pastors here, uh, and we are working through the book of Genesis, which is going to take forever, uh, but we think it'll be good. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to focus on verses 18 through 25. That's 18 through the end of the chapter. So I'll read this out loud if you would follow along, and then, uh, and then I will pray. We'll pray together and ask the Lord for some help here. So Genesis 2, verse 18. Sorry, I just realized I didn't mention anything about the kids. Uh, the kids can go up to second grade if you want to send them uh, to one of the classes they can go. Usually the kids just know what they're doing, even more than I do, so, all right. All right, Genesis 2, starting in 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. As Matt prayed, uh, I just pray again, Lord, we, we ask you if you will please do the work that only you can do through your word, by your spirit this morning. Please teach us. Please, through this, make us more like Jesus in our character, in our desires. Please sanctify us, Lord, your children. For those of us who don't know you, Lord, we, we ask that you would work in a saving way to bring about true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus that would sink into the heart and would cause faith to rise up towards you. Lord, we understand our weakness, our limitations, our lack of understanding. Please help us. Please don't let us leave this room the same people. Let us leave changed, changed by your word. Work in power, please. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when we look back at chapter one, we see over and over God is uh, looking at what he had just created and he was seeing that it was good. You remember that from chapter one? He created light. He saw that it was good. Water and dry land, good. Vegetation, good. Heavenly lights, good. Birds and sea creatures, good. Land creatures, good. Mankind and all that he had created, very good. But at some point on that sixth day of creation, we see a gap between the Lord creating Adam and then declaring it to be very good. There was a little gap there. And, and this interjection here in chapter 2 where we see again God creating and God creating mankind, man and woman, male and female, he created them, chapter 1 says. We see the history of God creating female. And of course it's hugely important. It's over half of the human race, statistically, worth our attention, obviously, something really important, significant, something with eternal ramifications that the Lord was doing. And when he was done creating it, he looked out over everything he had made and he said, it's very good. 
Now, I feel like we have to stop here for a moment. Just like before we even started trying to learn chapter one, this creation account, the kind of uh, the, the meta-narrative, the, the back up and take a large view of the whole universe being created, we have to stop and remember there are specific purposes for what God's communicating here, why he's communicating it in the way he does, the things that he is trying to tell us about and the things that he's not trying to tell us about. And we have to do the same kind of thing here because again, just as easily as you could read chapter one, and you could read it as some sort of fable, some allegorical fable that's just meant to communicate some lesson, some spiritual lesson, but not actually communicate history to you, we have to do the same thing here. And I think the big point where people naturally start to get skeptical and treat this like fable is when they hear of God taking a rib out of a person and making a woman out of it. Isn't there some kind of natural human skepticism inside of us that's like, cute story? But we have to remember this is history. This is Moses writing to the Jewish people as they wander in a desert for 40 years and God intends to communicate to the, to the nation of Israel how it is and why it is that he created everything and the way he created everything. So these are meant to be actual facts of creation and we have to read it that way. Now we know that we can also learn a lot from this. It's, it's not only allegorical and that it's like a story that represents some other truth, but it actually is representing other truths. And it's important for us to understand what those are. It's also important for us to understand here in chapter two, as God has created man and now he's gonna create woman and then he's gonna create a relationship between the two of them, it's important for us to understand that God is setting patterns in motion. He's not just creating two people, but he's creating a way of life. He's creating a system for humanity to live within, relationally, physically, towards each other. So here we go. Everything is good. He's created Adam. Women, don't go nuts with that. Okay, he created Adam and it was good. Then he created a woman and he looks and he goes, it's very good. I know, like it feels like there's some kind of chronology there where women would feel like, oh yeah, it was just okay until then. It's also kind of funny that man in the Hebrew is ish. I, when I'm looking at something and I'm like, is it good? And I go, ish. It's like, well, okay, that's kind of funny to me. And woman is called ish ish, which is like extra. I don't know. <laughs> but this is what's really fascinating to me. Right when you jump into this account, starting in verse 18, then the Lord God said, up to this point, everything he had said was either that he had said something was good or he had said in some creative way so that just by him speaking, just by him desiring, things come into being. But then here you get something different from the Lord. The first thing he says here, it is not good. It is not good. We haven't heard that from the Lord yet something that he looked at over creation and that simultaneously everything was good, but that there was something that was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. So, not good that he should be alone. It's not that when he made Adam there was something wrong with him because he made him perfect. Remember that Adam is perfect right now. There's no sin, there's no corruption, there's no failure. God and Adam are living in perfect community and unity with each other, the creator and the created being. So there's nothing wrong with Adam, but there's something wrong with his loneliness. God points that out. It's not good that the man should be alone. So here's the interesting thing, two facts. Keep these two facts in mind. Adam was perfect, Adam needed a helper. He was perfect and, not but, and he needed a helper. 
a companion, someone to walk with, someone who would be there for him and he would be there for this person. The only way to make sense of these two simultaneous truths is to recognize God had designed Adam to need a helper, right? You have to recognize that. If he's perfect and he has a need, then he was designed perfectly to have that need. Isn't that fascinating? And isn't it so against the nature of a man? Do you want to think, men in the room, do you want to think that if you were perfect, you would still need a wife? It feels like, it feels like there's some imperfection in our need, but that's not the case. We were designed with a need, designed with a limitation, and it doesn't make the design imperfect. It's very good in the way God meant it to be. So it wasn't brokenness or failure, just creative design on the part of God. Now here's where it kind of hits us in the soul, is a man who claims to need no one but himself is actually railing against the way God created him. I mean, we're half a verse into this text and we already have to recognize this. Men, if you want to be just fiercely independent, then you're railing against the way God created you. That's not how God designed you to operate. In spite of all the outward success a man can claim, all the trinkets he can gather as monuments to his independence, he will always be inwardly dissatisfied when he makes himself an island. Always. God made him that way. Made men with a need. And we see what God created to meet that need, to fill in that gap. Not to make something more perfect, not to even complete something, but to fit, to fit with him so that he could be everything God wants him to be. So now notice here that Eve, Adam's soon-to-be wife, is referred to by the Lord as a helper. Look again at it. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That, that fit there means something that actually works together in concert. It's not that these are two bad things, but it's two things that are really good. And when you put them together, they work in a complementary way. I don't mean complimentary like they say nice things about each other, but that they complement one another and that they work better together. When one of them operates on its own, it can work, but when you add the other to it, it flourishes. It, it excels in its goodness. So she is called a helper. Now here's a point where if you don't understand the Bible's teaching in a little broader way, and, and you're not able to back up and look at what the language means and specifically how God said this and the words that he used, it's very easy and honestly, most of the world and even a lot of the church comes at this passage and goes, here we go with the, with the chauvinism. Christian chauvinism, it's to, I mean, we didn't even get two chapters through the Bible and already women are less. Men are so excellent and wonderful and women are just designed to help him. But you got to stop. You've got to know what a helper is because it's way more glorious and way more powerful and way more necessary than you may have ever realized. The Hebrew word here for helper is ezer, E-Z-E-R, ezer. And this actually comes up a lot in scriptures. It means to supply strength where it's lacking, to supply strength where it's lacking. Now, if that's not good enough for you ladies to convince you that, that to be a helper to your husband is actually something really powerful, something really necessary, not just some added thing to a man, but it's something a man needs, take note of some other helpers in the scriptures. I'm gonna lead you through a few scriptures where this same word, ezer, is used either by itself or in combination with another word in order to add why the strength is needed. Exodus 18.4, we see that Moses named one of his sons 
Eliezer, because he said, the God of my father was my help. The God of my father was my help. Who was the helper here in this context? God. God is the helper here. Deuteronomy 33, 7. Moses said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Be an easer against his adversaries. We're talking about battle here. Preservation of a people, of a tribe. God is the helper. 1 Samuel 7, 12, Samuel builds a monument to the Lord and calls it Ebenezer. That means stone of help. He declares, till now the Lord has helped us. The Lord is a helper for Israel. Then look at what David says in some of his worship towards the Lord. Psalm 30, verse 10, David says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my what? Be my helper. Be my helper. It's the same language that's used here in Genesis 2. Be my helper. Psalm 118, 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord is our easer. We lack strength. He provides it. So women, what's happening here, wives, what's happening is the Lord is creating a strengthening agent that will complement this man that he has created. That when they work together, the man will flourish, the woman will flourish. So wives, you're designed to be strong in ways that your husband is weak. It's the way you were made. And that, that doesn't degrade men or women. That, that word easer isn't that one is superior to the other. That's not even in question here. There's a purpose that the easer serves, supplying strength. Equality is assumed. Husbands, let me speak to you. Everything that the Bible's saying here should be extremely humbling. Extremely humbling. Even if you were sinless, if you picture Adam in the garden, sinless, perfect, this relationship with God that is so close that there's actually walks happening in the garden together. I, I imagine Adam, I mean, if we're trying to think of like the perfect man, and, and I'm talking to the guys now, if we're trying to imagine like, what is the ultimate? If I was everything I could ever want to be, everything that I could imagine, walking with God, sinless, ripped, just ripped, probably. I hate, I'm, I've known guys like this, they've never worked out before and they're ripped. I hate them. I don't know how that happens. I remember being in a hotel room for a baseball tournament in high school and one of the guys on the team who was a friend of mine, you know, we're all like teenage boys in comparison and everything, and in the hotel room, he takes his shirt off. I'm like, how do you have pecs? You've never worked out before. How do you have pecs? I hate your guts because I'm so skinny. <laughs> we imagine Adam in, in all of this perfection, just this beautiful person, naked, unashamed, in a garden, still needs his wife, designed to need her. He is lacking strength in an area where his wife can supply that strength. This is extremely humbling. This leaves no room for chauvinism. It leaves no room for independence. It leaves no room to relegate wives as just some kind of servant in the house. It means we need them. And not that we need them because we are sinning. Again, although we, we may need them and the Lord may use them, to help us in areas where we sin, but it's not just that we've sinned and need someone, it's that we're designed to need her. 
designed to. God wants you to need her. So to recognize your need for your wife, is that somehow wrong? Is that degrading? Is that weak? No, it's godly. It's godly. It's right. It pleases the Lord for us to recognize we need our wives. And let me tell you, just as a personal note here, one of my greatest struggles in leading my wife well has been admitting when I need her because I want to prove something to her. I want to puff my chest out. I want her to respect me because she, because she doesn't have to have a husband who needs her because there's something inside of me, some broken part of me that just wants to be excellent in every way so that my wife just goes, wow. I'll just be over here. You obviously don't need me. If something comes up, just let me know, but you're nailing it. That's how I want my wife to see me. It's how I want her to feel about me. That's what I think my wife respecting me is. But the Lord says you need your wife. And you know what I've realized? She respects me more when I'm willing to say, I need you. When I'm willing to humble myself and say, I don't know where to go here. I don't have a mind for this. I lack wisdom in this. I lack insight or perspective in this area. Can you speak into this? That's actually being a better husband. It's being a more godly man to admit and be humble where we have need. So apparently God led Adam through a process of discovering his need for Eve and it's a really interesting process here. Starting in verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now again, this is God giving Adam dominion over creation. For him to name the creatures means those are your creatures. They're in subjection to you. You are put here to rule this place, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful, to multiply. You name the creatures. Then the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. <coughs> I, I don't know how long that took, but he had plenty of time. And he was perfect. And this wasn't boring for him. This was him working with God to have dominion over the earth. But then the second half of verse 20 happens. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, this didn't surprise the Lord, obviously. The Lord knew this was coming, but he parades all these animals, all these other living creatures, because at this point in the creation account, Adam is by himself as a human. He's not communicating with these creatures in a way that two humans communicate with each other. And as great of a companion as, say, a dog can be, I don't want to marry one. If you do, let's set up a session But there's something about these animals that Adam himself recognizes what God already knows. There's not someone here who's a fit easer for you, a strengthener where you need help, where you're designed with limitations. These creatures aren't designed to fit with you in that way. So the Lord responds. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, design, divine surgery. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. The word made there literally means to build. He built a woman out of this bone, constructed her. Out of the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he wakes the man up. He's laying there on the ground, I guess, the place sealed up. And the Lord wakes him up and here is Eve, his wife. Then the man said, now notice what happens in verse 23. Do you see how in your Bibles, 
This is all, these words are all written in paragraph form. This is prose. And then we get down to this point, and as Moses records it, there's something about the way God told Moses to record these words that now it breaks out into poetry. It breaks into song here. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. He names her because she was taken out of man. And the word for woman is very closely related in the Hebrew to man. They sound very similar. Ish, ishish. You start with a man and then you get this woman. It's also interesting to note that the word for woman sounds like, and maybe it's an intentional play on the word for mine, mine. So I've heard it said before, and I can relate that all these animals pass in front of Adam and he's just naming them, just just trying to be as creative as possible, but he's just so kind of not enamored with them. And then he wakes up and he sees her and he goes, mine. That's, that needs to be mine. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's part of me. She's part of me. And he recognizes she's different from every other created thing. She is fit for me. Therefore, the scripture says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Lord here is instituting marriage. He's creating it, establishing it, defining it, defining its parameters. Notice here that he did not create for Adam another Adam. He created Eve, a helper fit for him, a complement to him a strengthener for him where he's designed with certain limitations. You put two things with the same limitations together in a relationship, are there any answers to the limitations? No. They need something different. God created something different. Male and female, he created them. He establishes this relationship of monogamy and of permanence they will be one flesh for their lives. They leave their father and mother and establish a home together. This is God's institution of marriage. It's not a coincidence that you look out over human history and what do you see in terms of marriage? You see the assumption that a man and a woman are going to begin a relationship together that now sets them apart from their parents and they will permanently be committed to one another in a monogamous relationship. That's just normal marriage throughout human history and any culture, right? You don't have to teach people that. It's wired into humanity to seek that and to obey that desire. Now, this isn't the only place where we see these scriptures. They get quoted. They get quoted in the New Testament even. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to read together verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished saying, had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. The reason they're asking this, Jesus is going to explain. But notice how that's not really jiving with our Genesis 2 passage, is it? See what Jesus says. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and females? Now Jesus is teaching us the book of Genesis. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not heard this saying? 
Pharisees who are teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament, have you forgotten that this is what God has done? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now he's saying that in, an, in a reply to the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And he says, have you forgotten that when you're married, the two become one? Become one. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So in Jesus' view of marriage, this is for your life. This is for your life. A man and a woman becoming one flesh, that is living one life. And if I can put it in modern terms, I think it goes like one home, one family, one bank account, one pursuit, one goal. You are living one life. You cannot be separated from each other. And it's not because of a certain degree of affection. It's not how much you love each other or how much you like each other that makes you one flesh. It is that this is a covenant before God that God has created and designed for oneness. So by God's decree, when two people are married, they become one life before God. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from the Genesis, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is reminding them of the institution of marriage created by God, male and female, one life forever. Now that's getting to the heart of the relationship that a man and his wife have with each other that the wife was meant to complement to shore up and to strengthen the man where he's lacking so that as they live one life together, they're living it in concert together. They're building each other up and they're glorifying God each in their own unique way and in ways that help them to glorify God in the ways that they're not. So I'm a man and I glorify God by doing these kinds of things you're a woman, you glorify God by doing these kinds of things. We're created differently, but when you live the way you're designed to live, it helps me live the way I'm designed to live and vice versa. So we see Jesus affirming this is what marriage is. This is the kind of relationship God created. For a man to feel about his wife, this at last at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of me. She's meant to be my easer, my strengthener, my helper. In the same way that God would strengthen and help his children, she's meant to help me. Remember, this is all pre-fall. This isn't because of some fallenness, some sinfulness, some brokenness. This is created in perfection. God designed this to be exactly as it is. Now, this doesn't quite fill in the whole picture of everything that God created marriage to be. Not that Jesus was missing the point, but that he just wasn't revealing something quite yet to those Pharisees and to his disciples, but I'm going to ask for you to look at the complete picture by turning to Ephesians 5. So if you're in Matthew, keep on turning towards the back of the Bible, and you'll find Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Now here Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to teach wives and husbands about the relationship they should have towards one another. Before he begins to teach this, 
He says in verse 21 that we should all, all of the church, all believers should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's an, there's an attitude of humility in all of us and submission and deference that we all have towards one another, like Philippians 2. If you have any hope in Christ, any unity of the Spirit, then have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we should count one another as more significant than ourselves. Even though Jesus was in heaven in eternal unity with the Father and the Spirit, he was willing to let go of that position and become like us, humbling himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So then we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, placing our needs, each other's needs above our own. And now flowing from that attitude of humility, look at what he says, starting with wives. <coughs> Excuse me. Wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands. Remember, a man and a woman together for life. Submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, that is, submit to your husbands as an act of submission to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Because husbands were designed to lead. Women were designed to strengthen and help. Men were designed to lead. It's just a different role of service, a different role of humility. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Sounds simple enough, but he's going to define the love here. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The standard of a husband's love for his wife is the cross. Sacrifice. Love to the end. Love with no limit, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is what Jesus does for his church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She's precious to him, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. That is, you feed it and you protect it. You don't starve yourself and you don't play in traffic. Why? Because you want your body to survive. And we should regard our wives with the same kind of respect. The same desire to provide, to nourish, to build up. Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Now here comes the quote again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul understands Jesus' affirmation of God's creation of marriage. But look at what he says in verse 32. This mystery, and that it is, and those of us who are married know, this mystery is profound. The Apostle Paul had said some things that no human being had ever heard before. He had been given revelations about the gospel of Jesus Christ that were given directly from God's Spirit to be given to the churches so that they would understand the will of God for humanity. And he calls the mystery of marriage profound. Why? Because, he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we could do some different things here. We could try to dive really deeply into what it means to love, what it means to respect. Paul's already laid it out here. What respect means is submission. Submission to the Lord through submitting to the husband. And love means loving the church like Christ died for her. Loving your wife like Christ died 
for the church. So we're not going to try to teach things that I think are pretty plain from the text. Rather, we're going to talk about this profound mystery. This profound mystery. I want you to turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. I know that's a long way to flip back. Genesis chapter 2. I want to read our passage here again as the Lord creates the woman to be this easer, this strengthener for man, to complement him, to build him up where he has natural limitations, even in his perfection, understanding that the man is called to be the leader of the relationship, his affection for her, their distinct roles, but their equality as two beings created in the image of God. I want to read our passage again as God is creating, designing, instituting marriage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, he built into a woman and brought her to the man, brought her to the man, presented her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a profound mystery and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church. When God instituted marriage, what he was instituting was a picture, a picture of the gospel of two perfected things. Jesus, who in his perfection has always existed, is the Son of God. And Eve, who exists now, created by God, in perfection, to be in this relationship of submission to the man, to love him, to follow him, to honor and respect him. This mystery is about Christ and the church. It's about the gospel being illustrated in the world. So then here's what we would have to say. For each one of us who are married, and for those of us who aspire to be married, who have that desire in our hearts to be married, we have to understand that from the very beginning, Paul says, from the very beginning, these desires inside of you to be married were not just to have companionship and not even to be a better version of yourself, but it's to preach the gospel to the world. That the world would look at a marriage and they would say, there's something unique about that relationship, about the love, about the honor, about the submission, about the reverence for one another and the respect for each other and the, the preservation towards one another. There's something about that relationship that says something unnatural, something greater than just two people trying to live together. There's something deeply spiritual, something profound about that relationship and that the marriage would become a platform for preaching the gospel. Why do I respect and submit to my husband? He's obviously not perfect. He has all kinds of needs. He fails. Sometimes he doesn't even know where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to do, and yet I'm supposed to trust his leadership. Why? Why would I do that? Because my God says that my submission to him is a picture of my submission to the Lord. 
that I'm submitting it to him out of obedience to the Lord because the Lord designed this relationship to reflect Jesus' love for his church. Why do you love this woman? Why do you love your wife? She's been unfaithful to you. She is not respectful towards you. She's not even sure she wants to stay in this relationship all the time. She dips in, dips out as it kind of feels convenient as you prove yourself worthy to her in a way that she can understand and receive. Why is it that only when this woman seems to ever be rebellious and and trouble for you, why do you remain so steadfastly committed to her? Well, friend, because my role as her husband is meant to reflect the love and dedication of Christ to his church. I mean, you tell me, church, are you always the faithful bride? You always love Jesus no matter what, always defer to him, always respect him, always submit to him, even when you don't understand his leadership and the direction he's taking you? No, I am most submissive when it's most convenient, if I'm being honest. And yet, as the bridegroom, he is perpetually, always steadfastly, eagerly faithful to me. Marriage was created to be a picture of the gospel from its very origination. So, what do we have to do with this knowledge? Knowing that marriage was not just created for companionship, that there's equality between the man and the woman, but there's a complementary nature to our relationship where we can both be better at who we are because of each other. That we're tied and united to one another in this mysterious, inextricable way. You can't extract one from the other. When you're married, you're, the Bible says, one flesh. Jesus affirms one flesh. Paul affirms one flesh, living one life. And that this one life is meant to reflect Christ and his love for the church and the church's love and respect for Christ. What do we do now? What do we do from here? We have to recognize there are certain things about us as men, as women, as husbands, as wives, certain things about us that are innate, that are wired into us, hardwired into us, including limitations where we need each other to overcome those limitations. And rather than railing against that and trying to overcome that independently, we need to be looking to each other. Help me here. I need you right here. And we need to submit to that design. Submit to it. Because listen, I am not ignorant because of my own flesh. I am not ignorant of the fact that living in God's design is incredibly difficult for a fallen person. To not just kind of accept these things as, okay, I know that's in the Bible, but to embrace them as the way I'm going to live my life, even when it feels inconvenient, even when it's not real palatable, even when it feels like I'm admitting failure or weakness or defeat, because for most of us, weakness feels like defeat. For the man to admit he needs his wife, for the, man, for the woman to admit that she needs her husband, in a fallen world can feel like defeat. But it is not defeat. It's the first step towards walking in God's design for your marriage so that you could flourish so that you could be everything God called you to be because you're not called to be independent. You're not called to be strong enough on your own. So then we have to just confess knowledge of these things, embrace these things, go against our nature to obey these things 
And then here's really the ultimate step and the ultimate motivating factor in in embracing and believing Genesis chapter two and the way God created marriage. We have to stop living our married lives as if they just end on themselves. As if the ultimate goal of my marriage is for my wife and I to be happy enough together to not get a divorce. We have to stop living in our marriages this way as if the ultimate goal of marriage is happiness because it's not. The ultimate design and goal of marriage is to preach the gospel that Christ and his love, his sacrifice, his dedication would all be illustrated to the world around us through the way we love one another. This is the ultimate goal. So whatever your goal is right now that you've made ultimate, you have to demote it. You have to demote it. Whether it's selfish that this marriage is all about making me happy or whether it's completely put on the other person, this marriage is all about making you happy. Just so that you won't leave, just so that you'll keep loving me. Whatever your goal has been, if it's not to preach the gospel, you have to demote it and put the gospel as the priority the exclamation of your marriage. That's what it's all about. It's what God created it to be. So I know that within those goals of embracing God's design and embracing God's ultimate goal of preaching the gospel through your marriage, there's gonna be a lot of long talks required. There's gonna be a lot of repentance, a lot of confession required. I have to confess that this has really been my heart's goal here. I have to confess that I've been in this for me and I've been just working and working and working and fighting and arguing to make you about me rather than just letting you be who God designed you to be knowing that that's exactly what I need from you and that if I can embrace who I'm supposed to be, it'll be exactly what you need from me and this is all about proclaiming Christ as crucified resurrected and faithful to his people. So whatever is required of you, whatever the Holy Spirit is pointing out in your heart and convicting you of and redirecting you in, embrace that, brothers and sisters, embrace that. As long as we're in rebellion to this design and this goal for marriage, we'll always find ourselves feeling the sting of chapter three rather than just walking in the joy of chapter two. Naked, unashamed, fully known, limitations included, in unity with this person and unashamed to be with them, to know them, to love them, to walk with them before our God. There's such joy and there's such freedom there. But if we rebel against it, And we're just covering our shame all the time. Let's pray for some help. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.